Well, <clears throat> to say that the last presidential election cycle was controversial and contentious would be an understatement. Uh, and even now that we have a new sitting uh, president, it uh, really hasn't got any less uh, controversial or, uh, or contentious. Um, new executive orders uh, rolling out. Um, this plus uh, maybe possibly his pick for Supreme Court justice has caused uh, protests in Atlanta, Austin, Baltimore, Boston, Boise, Chicago, Dallas, Detroit, San Francisco, and other cities um, uh, across our nation. Many, many people are uh, upset and enraged um, uh, about this. And, and while um, some are enraged um, at and by our new president, other people are excited about it. Um, so some people are saying, hey, we, we hate all of these things that he is doing. Other people are saying, uh, we're really excited that somebody is doing something in Washington. So we kind of now live in this uh, new era that some people are calling the divided America. And here's what it comes down to. It comes down to where the power is. Okay? Some people are really excited uh, about our new president and, and the fact that that is where the power base is. Other people are not excited about where the power base is. But what it comes down to is who has the ultimate power. Where that power base rests is what is causing uh, essentially the divided America in which we find ourselves in. Um, so, some are disturbed, so disturbed uh, at where the power base is now that they have lost confidence in tomorrow. I mean, who, who has seen this on the news or heard someone say, what about my America? Like, what's going to happen to my America? Again, that is a fear of where the power base is, and so therefore you are, do not have confidence in tomorrow. Yet other people who support uh, our new president are excited about the power base, and because of where the power base is, they now have confidence for tomorrow. I mean, um, isn't the economy going to get better? Isn't our, our country going to become more secure? So you can see for some where the power base is gives them confidence for tomorrow and for others where the power base is robs them of confidence for tomorrow. Now, I usually don't make uh, political statements and what I'm going to say next is a political statement. While it is theological and political, it still is a political statement. Here it is. The most important thing to remember in politics is who has the ultimate power. And, and so, uh, again, the, the, the pulpit for, for, he, for us here at this church is, is to never pick a political side, but it is to remind us and point us back to the truth of God's word and, and to say some people are really freaked out about where the power base is and some people are really excited about where the power base is. Some people are robbed of their confidence for tomorrow because of where the power base is. Some people are given more confidence uh, for tomorrow where the power base is. But what we must know, what we as Christians believe, what, the one thing that we must remember is where the ultimate 
power base is. The reason that this is so important is because there is a powerful enemy out there. We need to be reminded where the ultimate power base is because of the power of our ultimate enemy. And our ultimate enemy is not Democrats. It's not Republicans. It's not the Tea Party or the Green Party or the Libertarians. Our greatest and most powerful enemy is not another nation. It's not political correctness. It's not political incorrectness. It's not tolerance. It's not intolerance. Our greatest enemy is not immigration or the threat of terrorism. Our greatest and most powerful enemy is sin. That's our greatest and most powerful enemy. And so we can get caught up in the whirlwind of um, the political climate that we find ourselves in, or we can hit the brakes on that. We can pause, we can slow down, we can remember where the ultimate power base is, we can remember who our ultimate enemy is and what our ultimate enemy is, and remember that the threat of sin can kill you. Sin can destroy your family. Sin can take away your children. Sin can rob you of all your money. It can take away your joy, your peace of mind, and your purpose. Sin is a powerful enemy. And so where the ultimate power is really does matter because... If power over sin is not in the right place, there is no hope for tomorrow. There's no hope for tomorrow if the ultimate power is not in the right place because of how powerful sin is. I mean, we could probably go around the room and, and, and if we were open and honest, describe and explain how sin, if we're honest, describe how sin has come into our lives and has destroyed some part of it. We could tell stories of friends and family members where we saw sin come into their lives and systematically break them down. And, and from all accounts, they were hopeless and helpless and had no power over the sin that had come in and was destroying their lives and the lives of their friends and their family. And so there is no hope for tomorrow against sin if the ultimate power doesn't rest in Jesus Christ. And so that is the good news. This is the good news that we're here to celebrate this morning is that the ultimate power base is in Jesus Christ. That any nation that is ever set up is set up by the power and sovereignty of Jesus Christ. Any nation that ever ceases to exist ceases to exist on the word and authority of Jesus Christ. And it is this God, this God of the universe whom we worship, he has the ultimate power over sin, can set captives free, can make blind people see. This is the God that we worship. Worship. Amen. And so if you're taking notes, jot this down. There is power in Jesus to defeat the sin that has been defeating you, which gives us confidence for tomorrow. That, that's, that's our confidence for tomorrow. How, how are we going to get up out of bed and, and go to work and, and try to live a victorious Christian life, living in victory over sin that kills, crushes, destroys, and distorts? How, I mean, with as powerful as sin is, how are we going to do that? How are we going to walk in victory? How are we going to walk in freedom? Well, the power is in Jesus. So my prayer for you guys this week has been this a room full of people filled with confidence, lifting their heads high, not confidence in themselves, not swaggering pride, but living in the confidence that Jesus had the power to defeat our greatest enemy, sin on the cross, and that our confidence in tomorrow comes from living in light of his victory. 
Now, if you would open your Bibles to Mark chapter 5, go ahead and get your eyes on that text and follow along with me as we work through it so you can make sure I'm not making it up as I go. We're in Mark chapter 5. Uh, All throughout chapter 4, we were in this section where we were learning parables. Jesus was teaching us parables, uh, and then at the very end, we saw uh, Jesus calm a storm. And so what we have in chapter 5 is um, three vignettes or three stories or three pictures where Jesus' power is put on display, where Jesus systematically proves to us and shows us that he ultimately is the one who has the power. He, he has power enough to cast out a legion of demons out of this man. Uh, he has enough power to where a lady who has um, been bleeding for many years simply touches his garment and she healed. That's how powerful Jesus is. Uh, And Jesus is also powerful enough to go to a guy's house and where his daughter lay dead, he speaks a word and she comes back to life. That's how powerful this Jesus is. And so today is all about seeing the power of Jesus put on display, which would give us confidence for tomorrow to walk in victory over sin. Listen, not just sin in our own lives, but I know that there are many people in the room today who have close friends, close family members who are being dominated by sin and you have no confidence that they will ever get out of that. Well, I hope that by seeing this story today, you will have confidence in Jesus that if it be his will, he can overcome any sin. Now, let's go ahead and get into our text and begin to work through it. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerizines. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. Now, let us not forget what has just happened. Uh, It was evening. Uh, Jesus had been preaching all day long. They got into a boat as they were going. Jesus fell asleep, exhausted from ministry, exhausted from preaching. He falls asleep in the back of the boat. The storm comes up. The disciples are freaked out. They wake him up. Jesus stands up and he rebukes this storm. He literally has the power in his very word to calm waves and wind. And while he has just calmed this massive storm on the sea, we are going to see him calm a massive storm inside of this man's soul. You can imagine that the disciples are still a little freaked out. Wouldn't you be? If you had been in that boat and Jesus had stood and spoke and nature had obeyed, um, I I would need a little alone time to process, right? That, that's what I would have needed, but the disciples get no, no, no such time to uh, internal process and calm down after what they had just seen. We can assume now that the sun is coming up, the boat has landed on this shore, and as soon as the boat lands, here comes a naked man who is covered in self-inflicted wounds, who is screaming, who is unkempt, wild hair, uh, literally insane, charging them. This is the scene uh, that they arrive at as soon as the boat lands. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for they had often bound him with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles into pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. 
Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. There is this man, and he is living among the tombs. Now, we can imagine that he is living among the tombs because he is a social outcast. Because of his state, um, he's no longer able to live in a society, a civilized society, and so he is kicked out, and the only place that he can find to live and to stay would be the tombs. Also, any type of demon possession, there's got to be some type of infatuation with, with death, and so he, he is drawn to these tombs where he lives. Now, uh, it says that he lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with the chain. You see, there were no uh, mental institutions in the first century. And so uh, mental institutions essentially equaled chains. And so they sought to bind this man because of how wild and violent he was. Uh, They sought to bind him with chains. But apparently it says that he wrenched the chains apart and no one had the strength to subdue him. And so uh, these, these demonic spirits that were living inside of him were giving him supernatural strength to wrench apart the chains and he was unable uh, to be bound at all. He was completely uncontrollable, uncontainable, and unrestrainable. You see, the demons that embodied evil and sin had completely and totally taken over him. Look back at verse four. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. Listen to this. No one had the strength to subdue him. It was impossible. No one could. Sin had come in. Sin had taken over. He was totally uncontrollable, helpless, hopeless. Chains didn't work. Ropes didn't work. Five guys tackling him didn't work. They could do nothing for this man. Totally helpless and under the power of sin. Have you ever found yourself powerless to sin? Even the great apostle Paul said, the evil that I don't want to do, that's what I keep on doing. Romans chapter seven. This man finds himself totally subdued by sin, and no one could help him. He was always crying aloud. Um, We know that he's kind of running around in the tombs and on the mountains, and so you could almost imagine being in this town and almost hearing these shrieks and guttural screams coming from the mountaintop and coming from the tombs and how eerie and terrible that must have been, and he was cutting himself with stones. Now, Uh, The terrible possession uh, was manifesting itself in a self-destructive way as he cut himself with stones. Uh, The the commentators kind of go back and forth on why he was actually doing this. Was was this a part of a pagan ritual, some type of satanic pagan ritual that was causing himself to cut himself with stones? Was he so depressed and distraught he was seeking out and reaching out just to feel anything, even if it was pain? Was he trying to take his own life? We don't know, but we do know that he was being self-destructive. And many of us um, have either gone through this personally or know people um, who have sought this as as an escape or as a way out. Just imagine the disheveled state of this man who is naked, covered in sores, has not bathed in who knows how long, and is totally out of his mind. 
This is a horrifying picture of humanity that Mark here is putting on display for us to see. Now, even as we look at this picture, it's horrifying and terrible, but now let's import their cultural context, okay? Um, he, he is living among the tombs. Now, for any good Jew, you know you're not supposed to be around or touch anything that is dead. Otherwise, you are unclean. Uh, in addition, any type of wound or open sore is unclean. Uh, he is filled with demonic spirits, unclean. We're going to find out in just a moment. He's hanging around with a bunch of pigs, also unclean. So not only is he insane out of his mind, uh, but he is also spiritually unclean. Now, friends, if we only had eyes to see ourselves in this man. You see, the truth is, the Gerasene demoniac is a dramatic illustration and a portrayal of humanity devoid from God. That is what Mark is putting on display. As, as we look at it, as we read it, it's horrifying and it's terrible. And, and we can almost find ourselves separating ourselves from that, putting ourselves in the boat with the disciples, looking at this terrible thing, thinking, wow, that, that is so out of the norm. That's so crazy. That, but the truth and the reality of what Mark is putting on display is that humanity, you and I, devoid from God, this is who we are. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 3, we know it well. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." Church, hear me this morning. There are not three categories when it comes to your spiritual standing before the Lord. This is what we would all love to believe, and this is what many people actually do believe, that there are three categories. There is one category where you are a Christ follower, you are obedient to the Lord. The second category is um, you're like you wear black clothes, you paint your fingernails black, you do weird, like demonic, you know, satanic rituals, and you're a follower of Satan. But most people live in this third category to where they pretty much make up their own way. They do their own thing. I mean, they're not Satan worshipers, but they're not Bible thumpers either. You know, they're, they're their own person, the, the own master of their destiny. They make their own choices and do their own thing. That's the third category that most people believe they live in. And friends, that is a lie from the devil. The, the, Satan is happy to let you think that's where you are. The truth of the matter is there are those who are Christ followers and then there are those who are ruled over, enslaved to Satan. This text could not be any more clear. There are children of wrath and there are sons and daughters of God. It is that clear and that straightforward. Now, what we see by looking at this text is a man who is dominated by sin. And we learn something very, very profound. If you're taking notes, jot this down. Number one, sin cannot be conquered by external means. 
Sin cannot be conquered by external means. What did they try to do? They tried to tie him up. How'd that go? Didn't work. All right, get the chains. Right, bring the chains in. How'd that work? It didn't work. All of their external means um, could do nothing to defeat sin. Uh, What this text in Ephesians just said is you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And so the question becomes, what can a dead person do to make himself undead? (laughs) Nothing. He can't do anything. There are no external means that can defeat uh, this type of sin. It may be exchanged, but it cannot be conquered. So some people would say, okay, I, you know, I used to be an alcoholic, um, but, but I'm not that anymore. Okay, great. Th- that does not mean that you have defeated sin. You've merely exchanged it for something else. You're not an alcoholic anymore, but you are smoking four packs a day. Um, some people say, so I used to be addicted to food, but now, I'm, you know, now I go to the gym all the time. And it's like, okay, well, what happens if you don't go to the gym? Well, my whole world falls apart. Okay, so, so sin cannot ultimately be conquered. It can be exchanged, but it cannot be conquered by external means. Also, what we learn from the picture of this demoniac is number two, sin is always destructive. It couldn't be more clear from this text that, that this man's life was destroyed. We, we can imagine him having a, a wife and children, yet he is, he is pulled away from them, living in the tombs, cutting himself, uh, screaming, ranting out of his mind, because sin is always destructive. Now, oftentimes we think the sin that I do really isn't that bad. I mean, there are obvious ones out there, the obvious ones that I've just stated. You know, uh, we can see the destructive effects of overeating. We can see the destructive effects of alcoholism. We can see the destructive effects of drugs. The, those, those type of sins, those type of overt sins, the destructive nature of them is so clear. But again, sin is always destructive. So anytime we disobey God's law and sin, it is destructive. As we walk in pride, it is destructive because we believe that we are more capable than we actually are. When we walk in envy, it causes us to devalue what we have and the people around us. So there is never a time that you say, I'm going to walk in this sin, but it's not going to hurt anybody. I know God's word says not to do this, but it's only going to hurt me or it's not going to hurt anyone at all. That is a lie. Sin is always, it's always destructive. And number three, sin robs us of our humanity. Look at the state of this guy. He's naked. He's living outdoors in the tombs. He's basically living like an animal. It it has robbed him, sin has robbed him of what makes him human, right? He, he, He is robbed of his humanity. You see, the true expression of what it means to be human is distorted by sin. Listen to this. Animals in the wild sometimes kill their young, but an expression of humanity is to protect the helpless, Right? That, that is an expre- that's what humans do. An expression of humanity is to, is to protect those who cannot protect themselves. But our society is dominated by sin, and this is why we kill our children out of convenience through abortion. 
Because sin robs us of humanity. An expression of true humanity is to value people. But in the society that we live in, we devalue humans by putting them on a screen and allowing them to perform lewd acts. Sin always devalues humanity. Sin distorts the pathway to optimal human flourishing. This scene, again, is meant to be horrifying, and it would have been to the hearers, and I believe it is to us now, to see the state of this man. Verse 6. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, the Son of the Most High God? I adjure you, by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. What is so interesting, if you just, just glance back at chapter 4, the very end of chapter 4, and they were filled with a great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This question was not answered at the end of chapter 4, but this demoniac answers the question, uh, what have you to do with me, Jesus, the Son of the Most High God? Um, now, while some translations will say, and when he saw Jesus from afar, he worshipped him, um, that would be an incorrect translation and would probably give a, a, a misunderstanding of what's actually happening. Um, this idea here is that he fell down prostrate before him, which um, sometimes could show a sign of worship, but this demoniac is certainly not worshipping Jesus. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, "'What have you to do with me, Jesus, the Son of the Most High God?' Then he says, I adjure you. Okay, interesting word. Has anyone adjured anyone this week? Okay. Um, here's, we don't usually use that word. Um, here's what that word means. That, that word means to, to give a command, an earnest, authoritative command. So, so you can see already the discontinuity that is living inside of this man to where he is falling down prostrate before Jesus, yet commanding him trying to make a, a command of Jesus. I adjure you by God, uh, calling, uh, the, calling in the big guns per se. I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of this man. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion. Now, again, if, if you study history, you know where this word comes from. This would have been uh, a, a term which describes a unit um, of Roman soldiers. Uh, this is a very large unit. A legion of Roman soldiers would have been upwards of 6,000 men. Uh, and so we, we're not exactly sure how many uh, demons this guy has living inside of him, but it's a lot, um, as he has called himself legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Um, Mark doesn't give us much explanation on that uh, about why the demoniac was asking him. And so we're kind of forced to speculate that um, this is a Gentile region 
and we're just going to assume that things were going great for the demons there. Uh, they, they were, you know, commanding people. They were obviously indwelling people. Uh, they probably ruled over the markets, and, and they just had a lot of good stuff going for them, so they didn't want to be sent out to a region to where there were a lot of people who worshiped the one true God. So they want to stay in that country because they don't want to go to other countries to where it would be harder for them to operate. So what happens next uh, really almost causes more questions than gives answers. So let's just read it and we'll ask the obvious questions and then, and then I think uh, we can bring some things that are very clear to light. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside and they begged him saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd numbering about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Okay. Now, a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us into the pigs. Why? Why are they begging Jesus to be sent into the pigs? I mean, do they need a host? Like they, and if they need a host, then why do they kill these pigs? So, um, okay. Um, uh, and they begged him saying, send us into the pigs so that we might enter them. So he gave them permission. Why? <laughs> why doesn't Jesus just tell them no? I mean, obviously he, is, he has the authoritative power to tell them to do whatever he wants them to do. Um, but, but he gives them permission to do this thing. Sure, you, you guys can enter the pigs. Okay. And the unclean spirits entered the pigs, and the herd numbering about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. I mean, can you imagine the herder's conversation with their boss? We've lost the pigs. What do you mean you've lost the pigs? We've lost the pigs. <laughs> How did you lose them? They drowned. What? I mean, this, I mean, first off, I've never seen 2,000 pigs at once. Second off, I can't imagine this scene of them rushing down this hill and 2,000 pigs flailing and thrashing in the sea and they drown. I mean, this, this is an incredible, an incredible scene. I mean, and, and again, there's, there's almost a bit of a dilemma here. It's like, well, what? Jesus just destroyed a lot of property here. I mean, what about the herdsmen? They probably lost their job. What about the people who own the pigs? They're out a lot of money. I mean, we can imagine that the Roman soldiers are around in this area. These pigs probably would have been being raised to feed the Roman army. Um, so they're out a lot of money. And I mean, imagine the economic impact that this had on this region. I mean... Again, the, the questions are just kind of like coming one after another after you really sit down and look at this text. Now, while all of these questions can create a fog in our minds, let's see the beam of light coming through. Number one, Jesus rules over Satan and demons and therefore sin. Again, they're asking him, hey, can we go into the pigs? The text says, and he gave them permission. So while this is a very confusing scene, there's something very clear in it. Jesus rules over Satan and demons. Why is this important? 
It's important because Jesus commands and they obey. Here's what this means. It means that everything comes from the hand of God or it passes through it. It means he is in control. It means he has already displayed his dominance over Satan in the 40 days in the wilderness, did he not? He has already shown that he rules over and has more power than Satan as he resisted temptation in the 40 days in the wilderness. Uh, He has shown that he rules over Satan and demons because several times now in Mark, he has already cast out demons just simply by a word, and he's going to show his ultimate dominance over Satan and demons by ruling over them by his death and through his death on the cross. This is why uh, Colossians 2.15 says this, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus put Satan and demons to open shame and dominated them. This is the great paradox of the cross. If you look at the cross, it looks like Jesus is being put to open shame. He is stripped naked. He is beaten. He is nailed to the cross. If anybody is being put to shame, it's Jesus. But that's actually the paradox. That's actually incorrect. It is Satan and demons who are being put to shame because it is by that very act of his death, his burial, and his resurrection that he defeats them. So the very thing that they were trying to use to defeat him, he defeats them. That's how powerful Jesus is. So it's very clear here from this very confusing scene that Jesus rules over Satan and demons. God rules over all. Listen to this. This is good news because God's promises can only be true in situations where he rules. God's promises can only be true in situations where he rules. If God isn't in charge then we can't be sure his promises are going to come true. But if God is in charge over all things everywhere, we can be sure his promises will come true. Here's another clear thing for us too. What is clear is that Jesus values the redemption of one man more than he values 2,000 pigs. Okay, Uh, so before, you know, you call up PETA and start protesting Jesus... Um, let's say, let's say this. Number one, you eat bacon. Okay. So, uh, don't be mad at Jesus for killing these pigs. You eat bacon. Uh, number two, that's the reason these pigs were being raised was to be slaughtered. Okay. That's why they're being raised. And number three, uh, Jesus rules over all creation because creation is his. He owns it. He owned those 2,000 pigs. They were literally his pigs. They didn't belong to the herdsmen or to the owners of the pigs. They were his pigs, and so he can do with them whatever he wants to do. But it's clear that Jesus was willing to say, sure, you guys, you guys, you're coming out of this man because I care about his redemption. If 2,000 pigs get killed, fine. I value one man's redemption more than I do 2,000 pigs and probably 10,000 pigs for that matter. So they come out of the man and go into the pigs because Jesus loves his children with a deep love that is beyond our comprehension. Verse 14 through 17. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And when they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. 
And those who, were, uh, who had seen it described it, what had happened, the demon-possessed man, and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. He was naked, um, cutting himself, screaming out of his mind, out of his head. By the word and the command and the power of Jesus, he is totally and completely transformed. Everything gets flipped up on its head. This, this picture of a shattered and broken humanity, totally devoid of what it means to be human, is now sitting clothed in his right mind, the picture of what humans are supposed to be. Jesus comes and restores the balance of optimal human flourishing. That's what Jesus uh, comes to do in us and in our lives. John uh, chapter 8, verses 34 uh, through 36 says this, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Was this demoniac a slave to sin? Could he figure out how to get out of it? No, he couldn't. He was a slave to it. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. This is what just happened to this man. He just got set free because Jesus had the power to speak the word and it happened. So I'll say it again. There is power in Jesus to defeat the sin that has been defeating you, which gives us confidence for tomorrow. Friends, remember where the power base is. Again, our, our world is freaking out right now about where the power base is. Somebody, some people are really excited about where the power base is. Some people are not so excited about where the power base is. But we know where the true power base is. And so that gives us confidence to live for tomorrow. Again, the text clearly said, no one could subdue him. No one could do it. He couldn't do it himself. Nobody, they tried ropes, they tried chains, they tried all this stuff. No one could subdue him. And then Jesus steps in and with a word subdues him. This is the mighty power of Jesus. And so again, remember where the power is and that gives us confidence to live for tomorrow because we're not living on our power to defeat sin. If you're here this morning and you feel beat down by your pride, you know you walk in pride. You know it's crushing you. You know it's causing other people around you uh, to, to have a hard time being around you. If you're here this morning and you're crushed by addiction, whether it be to pornography, drugs, and alcohol, if you feel crushed by envy, you're just constantly looking at what other people have and you can't stop thinking, man, I wish I had what they had. If you feel crushed by that, we have confidence to live for tomorrow, not on our power to get it done, but on the power of the one who speaks the word and it happens. The power of the one who says, waves, be still, and they're still. The power of the one who says, hey, thousands of demons come out of this man now, and they come out. That's the power that we're living on. So jot this down. Who he is comes before what you do. Who is he? He's the powerful one. He's the one with the power base rest. He's the one who with a word makes a command and it happens. He's the one who spoke the entire creation and universe into existence. That's who he is. And so that is the power in which we live in to then walk out what we do. Don't, don't get them mixed up. Don't focus on here are the things that I have to do to, to get all of this stuff out of my life. 
You know, I gotta stop talking to these people. I gotta stop going there. I gotta stop doing this. You know, if I could only just read my Bible more and pray a little more, then I would finally defeat sin. Look, that's not to say you're not involved in this process, but who he is comes before what you do. And who is he? He's the powerful one. He is the one who binds up the strong man, if you remember. So, how do these people react to this? Well, they ask him to leave. I mean, they, they should have been saying, thank you, Jesus. We're going we're gonna to throw you a parade. I mean, this guy has been, you know, terrorizing our town for, you know, for forever. And, and, and thanks, like you've, you have rid us of this crazy man. Thank you. This is, this is amazing. But it seems that where Jesus cared more about the redemption of one man than the pigs, they cared more about the pigs than the one man. And if Jesus was powerful enough to speak a word and totally radically transform this guy's life with a word, what would he do to them? You see, a lot of times we know how powerful Jesus is and we just don't want him to come that close. It's too much, it's too scary. I don't, I don't really, I mean, I kind of want to change, but not really. And so they are filled with fear and don't want anything to do with Jesus. And so they ask Jesus to leave. Verse 18, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home Tell your friends, tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. Note the compassion of Jesus. While the people kick Jesus out, we don't want anything to do with you. That's like, one, where are we going to get our bacon and ribs? That was terrible. Number two, we're scared of your power and we don't want you anywhere near us. Go away. Jesus is so compassionate that he does not leave them without a witness. He says to this man who wants to go with him, Dude, can, I go with, can I go with you? Remember when he was possessed by the demons, what he said? Don't send us out of the territory. But now totally transformed by Christ, he's willing to get in the boat with Jesus and go wherever. But Jesus says, no. No, I I want you to stay here. Now again, a lot of questions why he told him no. I mean, isn't Jesus putting together people to follow him? (laughs) To go with him, to be with him where he is? Yeah, but he tells this guy no. We can assume, we can make assumptions. Maybe if he would have had a Gentile with him, uh, it would have been next to impossible for him to minister to the Jews, uh, which which was where he was headed and where where he was going and what he was doing. That's an assumption. Uh, God is sovereign and he had his reasons. So he, he sends this man back to his people to share with them what God had done for him. And so he goes to his own. He goes to the people Um, who were like him and who knew him, who had seen him in the state that he was before 
and could clearly see his transformation, could clearly see the power of Jesus working in his life. And that's exactly what he does. Go tell your friends and tell how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Listen to this. And he went away and began to proclaim that he obeys Jesus. He begins to proclaim in the Decapolis, this uh, Decapolis, Deca, Ten, uh, Opolis, we, we would think of city. So this is a region with 10 cities in it where he begins to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. Listen to this. And everyone marveled. They, just, they, couldn't, they couldn't believe it. They couldn't believe it. They couldn't believe what they were seeing. That They knew this was the, the crazy guy, the insane guy, the guy who lived in the tombs, who cut himself. And here he was clothed and in his right mind. Everybody marveled. It was unbelievable. This guy had a story to tell. Friends, don't ever believe that you don't have a story to tell. Many of us grew up in a church culture to where um, the, the, the best, I mean, I'm sorry, the, the, well, the best at sinning, right? The worst <laughs> were paraded in front of us and these were the testimonies that were lifted the most high, right? You know, I was into drugs, I did this, you know, I was all, you know, but, but then Jesus saved me and everybody's like, oh man, that's so great, you know. Again, Ephesians tells us that we were all dead in our trespasses. It's not that this demoniac has like the most unique and extraordinary testimony. Um, it's that the demoniac is a picture of us all. We all were the demoniac. We all have a story to tell about how we were once dead, but then Jesus made us alive. We all have a story where Jesus has been good to us. He has been merciful to us. And the call from this text is so clear that when Jesus does a great work in us, we have a great story to tell. And so that's what he does. He goes and he tells his story. Jesus has, has crafted and made in you a unique story for you to tell. No one else has your story. And, and, and you don't need to have anyone else's story. You have your story because that's the story that Jesus gave you to tell. Well, I never did any of that stuff. I never, you know, fine. Jesus doesn't want you to tell that story. He wants you to tell your story and share it with the people whom you live life with. He was sent back as a missionary to his own people. And so here we are, friends, living in the South, where there are churches on every corner. Most of us have church life experience. We've been in the church. We've been around the church. And as we share what the Lord has done with us, with many people out there, they say, yeah, sure, we know all about that. And it's us who have that unique perspective of understanding Christianity and church in the South. We are the exact people that Jesus wants to go and tell the religious people the truth about the gospel. So, some of you identify with this man. Uh, some of you may believe that you're nothing like him at all. But the truth is, sin is powerful. It is incredibly sneaky. Sin comes in to corrode marriages, friendships, and families. So how in the world can we have any confidence to live for tomorrow? Um, well, our confidence comes in the power of Jesus. 
the power of Jesus to command nations to come about or nations to cease to exist, the power of Jesus to command waves, wind, and sea, the power of Jesus to command thousands of demons to come out of a man, and they do. The power of Jesus gives us confidence to live for tomorrow. Let us leave out of here today with our heads held high. Again, not in pride within ourselves, but with an assurance in the power of Jesus to sovereignly rule and reign over our lives, to rest in his finished work on the cross, to rest in his grace, to forgive us when we fall, to rest in his power, to pick us back up and continue to put us on the path to victory until he returns again. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray for those this morning who, spiritually speaking, are the demoniac, but don't believe it to be so. May, with a word, you change their hearts and change their lives and set them free so that they might be free indeed. I pray for those of us who do believe, people in the room who are Christians, Uh, that we would stop trying to live the Christian life out of our own power, that we would realize where the ultimate power base is, that we would realize um, where the power is to defeat sin. It is in the grace of the cross of Christ that we would preach that gospel message to our hearts day by day and that through the power of Jesus and his grace, we might walk in victory over sin, the sin that destroys, the sin that robs, the sin that distorts. So we ask for this now, Lord. Uh, I ask now that you would send your spirit here to minister to the souls of people um, who have spouses who are being um, racked by sin, who have children um, where sin is coming in and destroying and distorting. For those of us who have parents where sin is coming in and destroying and distorting. I pray that we would live tomorrow in confidence knowing that you are powerful enough and if you would merely speak the word, it would be so. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen.